where they would let their staff do whatever they wanted for a fifth of the time, 20% of their time, as long as it benefited. And what came from that zone of genius time where they allowed their staff to come up with brand new inventions as long as it helped Google? All of the foundations that built Google was based on providing them playtime, right? Allowing them to play and pursue their zone of genius. So if you want your staff to be innovative, give them time. You can't give them a fifth of their time, but you can find 5% more time, an hour or two hours a week, where they can pursue something that's more interesting to them, that, that scratches their curiosity, right? And when you're doing that, then they also see that you're investing in them, and then they feel seen and appreciated, and they feel more valued that way. Welcome to Talking TA with Top Source Talent, the podcast that brings you the latest insights, strategies, and trends in talent acquisition. Hosted by Denise Chaffin, president of Top Source Talent with over 30 years of experience in the industry, this podcast features top industry experts, HR professionals, recruiters, and talent acquisition leaders who will share their experiences and knowledge on how to attract and retain top talent. Join Denise and her guests as they explore the exciting and dynamic world of talent acquisition. Only on Talking TA with Top Source Talent. Hi, I'm Denise Chaffin. I am president of Top Source Talent. And for our podcast today, I have the famous Jeff Harry with me. And Jeff's company is called Rediscover Your Play. I am so excited, Jeff, to for our conversation and to kind of delve in a little bit into your company and just some of the the nuances of your company that's that's kind of relatively new in our industry. I think, compared to some of the old organizational development practices and programs that we're normally used to hearing. So please do me a favor, introduce yourself, tell me a little bit about Rediscover Your Play. So thanks for having me. I'm super excited about this conversation. So when people ask me, like, what do you do? The easiest way to answer it is I say, I make work suck less. And I just so happen to use it through play and positive psychology. Because I've been traveling around the country for maybe the last two to three years. And whenever I speak to employees, like so many employees are just in such pain because they hate work. Like they either hate work or they find work disengaging or just it just sucks. Like it just ultimately just sucks. And the amount of time that I've spoken to people who are like, I just don't even want to work anymore. Right. Like they're just kind of that fed up. And I'm like, well, I can't figure out how to ensure that all of us can not work forever, right? But I can at least take some of the pain away from work so it doesn't suck so bad and that we can actually enjoy doing work again if you ever and did enjoy it. So that's how I that's why I use play and positive psychology to like literally address some of like the biggest pain points that a lot of organizations are dealing with, whether that's retention, turnover, toxicity in the workplace, burnout, all of those issues. I was going to just ask you, what do you think the top issues are, the top three? The top three issues are, is this retention turnover issue, right? Where you just can't keep staff, where people are just that disengaged. They're always looking for the next job. The second one is definitely, I mean, it's probably the top one is burnout. Like we never recovered. We never really ever recovered from the pandemic. We never really addressed a lot of the issues that showed up during the pandemic. 
So people are just burnt out. People are exhausted. They're doing, they're typically doing more than one job at one time right now. And yeah, they're kind of done. And then the third issue is this issue of a generation gap and how do we address how the various generations get along as well as how that all ties into what's going on with AI, right? It's just, there's just so many things up in the air that we're trying to just guess. And it's not a really good strategy because I see a lot of leaders being like, well, we're just going to treat our employees like crap because AI is going to replace them soon. It's just like, is that a good strategy? Like, how is that working out for you? So it's interesting that we're in this ish, this almost like fight right now where you have a lot of employers, a lot of CEOs that are getting paid 300 times their lowest paid worker, and they are so disconnected from the work. And other countries, like say, for example, Japan, their CEOs are only getting paid 20 times their lowest paid worker. So why are we justifying giving such exorbitant amounts to all these CEOs? And how are they so disconnected from the work that's actually happening on the ground? It's interesting you say that because now, too, with salary transparency, a lot of states are requiring companies to post salaries for positions. And so it's a lot more obvious, to your point, to employees, the, those discrepancies between their salary and somebody farther up the, the ladder. And it's also really frustrating when like, you go through some level of, of layoffs, right? There's all these layoffs that are happening, for example, in the tech industry. So they'll lay off a significant amount of people and then they'll buy back stock. So they did have the money. They just didn't have the money for you. And that doing those levels of actions show just such a disregard and disrespect to staff. And then and then you come back to them and then you're like, and we need you to work even harder. Yeah. Like what I'm saying. So like the actions of the leaders are really getting in the way of them actually being able to get the most out of their staff. So then let me ask you a question then. So your company, the Rediscover Your Play, mm -hmm. where, where do you guys fit in? Who contacts you? So a lot of corporations, I work with a lot of universities when they're dealing with like certain issues like how do we address toxicity in the workplace? How do, how do we address toxic masculinity, masculine leadership in the workplace, which can be exhibited by women, men, uh, people that identify as non-binary, like how do we address these issues? How do we have hard conversations? The amount of organizations that struggle to expand and grow simply because a manager cannot have a hard conversation with their staffer is so significant. We have so many managers right now. I think there was a study done that found that between 70 to 80% of managers that got promoted into middle management, never got management training. Like not one hour of management training, yet now they're middle managers and they don't know how to lead. They have no idea to lead. So they're leading out of a, a place of fear. And so we come in to be like, okay, how do we address these issues? How do you have those hard conversations? How do you get your staff to remind them why they love this work in the first place? Do you even know what your staff's languages appreciation are. Like, how do you give to your staff so they feel recognized, seen, heard, and appreciated? That's what's, whenever I talk to employees, that's what they want. So then how how are you then 
starting those conversations and what type of workshops then are you integrating or implementing into a corporation where they can actually then use your solutions then to change the burnout, change the retention turnover? So if we're running, so let's say we're running a workshop on getting staff to connect back to the mission and values of the organization, right? So then we'll run a workshop on them rediscovering your why. Why do you love your work? Why do you love your job? Why do you love being at this organization? Do you even still love it? How are your values aligned with the company's values, right? Do the stories of the other people of why they're being here. Okay, let's say we're talking about navigating difficult conversations. I'll run workshops where we practice how to actually have a hard conversation. And we'll start with really innocuous things to debate, but then eventually we'll get to the hard conversation they have to have. And we'll practice in real time so that then when they actually finish the workshop, they're more likely to go out there and actually have that conversation. Because what we what I've found is when a lot of speakers speak, you only remember 5% of what speakers say, right? Maybe, maybe. But when you're teaching it and when you're when you're actually learning and applying it yourself, 75 to 80% retention. So in every single one of the workshops I run, we do play exercise, embodied exercises, where they feel what it's like. What does it feel like for me to address a toxic staffer? Let's play it out and see so that they can get the bravery to actually do it in real time. So then, okay, let's go back then for a second, because this is very interesting, obviously. Yeah. So what is like, a di- give me an example of a difficult conversation. Yeah. So a difficult conversation would be, we just laid off half the staff. Now, what am I supposed to say to the other staff to motivate them? What are you going to do? How do I communicate that I still care and I have their back when all the actions that have communicated so far is that I haven't. So then that's me talking to them one-on-one and being like, what's important to you? What is the work? What What is your zone of genius work? What's the work you wish you could do more of? How can I help you do more of that work? If someone is doing that for me, all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, I know he just laid off everybody, but now he's showing an interest in me and now he's just showing an interest in everyone else. And he's invested in my own personal growth and my own professional growth. Another way I would approach that leader would be like, all right, do your staff's languages of appreciation, how they like to receive, do they like gifts, meaning do they like money? Okay, I'm going to make sure I'm compensating them. Do they like quality time? They want more of my, my FaceTime with me so that they can pick my brain. Do they want words of affirmation? Do they want praise, not just within the department, but outside of the department, just in case they want to transfer later on to another department? Or heck, go to another company and they know that I can be a reference for them. So doing those actions shows that they're starting to build a certain level of trust. And that's, again, all through play. Like you're you're doing experiments. Some of these experiments are going to work. Some of these are not. Are you creating, like let's say you're asking your staff to be more creative. Are you providing them a playground where they can potentially fail while they're attempting to come up with the next innovation. I I speak about where a a decent amount of burnout comes from is from perfection. You create these perfectionist workplaces where everyone has to pretend to be a certain way. They got to pretend to be a professional. This is part of the reason why I wear this stupid bow tie. It's to remind me not to take (laughs) stuff seriously. Right. 
and be like, come on, everyone. We're all wearing costumes here. Like, we're all pretending a little bit. Wouldn't you rather pretend to be more of yourself than anybody else? Yeah, there's that. What's that saying? That rule of 62, don't take yourself too seriously. Like, why are we taking ourselves so seriously? Yeah. And also, and I say this a lot when we're talking about like, well, why would play be important in the workplace? I learned this from uh, Kevin Carroll, this phenomenal play mentor, but he introduced this quote from Steven Johnson, you'll find the future where people are having the most fun. Oh, I love that. Right? So it's like, we're talking about innovation. We're talking about creativity. Which companies are going to be around in 10 years? Who are the companies that were taking risks during the pandemic? TikTok, Hulu, Netflix. Like, which which ones weren't? Sears. What is not around because they stopped playing? Blockbuster video. Like, you can see when, they, when pe- places do not take risks they become obsolete. They may still be around. Sears is still around. I think there might be one blockbuster left in Alaska. <laughs> yeah. But Toys R Us is gone, right? I, I worked at Toys R Us. Like, I helped open their flagship's Times Square store. When they treated their employees like crap, I did a Jerry Maguire and wrote a whole memo and put it in everyone's mailbox being like, you can't treat employees like this. And then they thought I was unionizing the store because I was like, no, just like you're not you're treating employees horribly. And because of this, you'll probably go out of business. And they went out of business 10 years later. So it's this idea of what is it? John Amici says this. What is what is the worst behavior you're currently tolerating in your workplace? Because that's your culture. That's your culture. Wow. Okay, That's interesting. I'm writing that one down. I don't care what's on your board. I don't care what your mission or your core values, your poster, that poster that's like perseverance, excellence. Like, who cares what's on that board? If you are tolerating a certain behavior, yeah, why are you tolerating that behavior? So I challenge leaders. I want to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Because there's a lot of corporations. There's a new phrase. Oh, I shouldn't say new. It's been around for a little while. But there's a lot of big corporations that we have supported that have what they call their centers of excellence. Yeah. So I wonder if that's a maybe a psychological term to try to instill the idea of excellence and perfection into people. I mean, I guess, but it's it's also BS. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's a lot of BS because like if you have a center for excellence and you're celebrating certain people, yet you're allowing Chad to be horrible to so many people potentially harassing people and he might have been ridded up numerous times and he might cause a lawsuit eventually or maybe he's already caused a lawsuit but you keep him they they refer to simon sinek refers to it as the brilliant jerk right you have to ask yourself how much is the brilliant jerk costing you because even if chad is sorry if there's someone named chad in this listening this but I'm using you as the example. But even if Chad is bringing in $3.5 million a year, if he's getting six or seven staff to quit, how much is that at costing you? It costs you potentially six to nine months of someone's salary, sometimes even more, just to recruit someone new, just to hire, just to train, all this. And I'm constantly asking, how much does it cost for you to replace your employee? Well, and also, too, you talked about languages of appreciation, right? Yeah. And I like that because I read an article just yesterday that uh, that said 
other countries actually embrace vacations more yeah. than we do. He called the United States the nation of no vacation. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what a tagline for our country. Canada has Canada has four weeks vacation. Australia gives four to six weeks of vacation. Wow. Two. We get two, and we don't even take the two weeks we get. Yeah, so I like, I like to talk about that for a second because, again, we, they were talking about burnout. Yeah. Your point right there is a perfect example. The burnout that people are experiencing is because they're not taking vacations. But then again, are there corporations even encouraging vacations, right? They are allowing people to work over. Yeah. I know even because I have a small business, right? So it's real easy for all of us to get overloaded. I have made a point where I can see when people are going to burn out, to push them into a vacation, give them that extra time off if they need it, that type of thing. But I thought that was really eye-opening yesterday to read that that tagline the United States. It's interesting you say that. So I'm, I was speaking with a colleague yesterday. We were running a workshop called Making Work Suck Less by Fixing Broken HR Systems. Uh-huh. And we were running it in Salt Lake at the Salt Lake Sherm chapter. And someone stood up and we were talking about what they appreciated about their job. Why do they stay at their job? And this one person says, I stay because when I go on vacation, I can actually take vacation. Because a lot of HR people, when they leave for those two weeks, they know when they come back, they're going to have so much work. Right. But the the idea that one could actually go somewhere else and not have to worry, and when they come back, someone's job, like their responsibilities and duties have been taken over by someone else, and then they're handed back and they're not overwhelmed, that is such a luxury. Right. Right. And that's really sad that that's a luxury, that that's not ex- ex- expected. Part of the reason why people don't take vacations, they don't know when, they don't know how, when am I going to do it? So they instead just use it for when they get sick or some they have some family emergency. Everybody winds up taking off. The other part of this article was like Christmas time here in the United States is kind of a shutdown period, right? Yeah. Our society has kind of like headed towards this one time a year where everybody kind of like unwind, right? Yep. And then the rest of the year, they're just going gangbusters. Going, you're just going, going, going. And and you're not even encouraging. Like there are certain corporations that are like, yes, you do need to take vacation. Yes, you do. You will not be looking at your email and I will make sure you don't look at your email, right? Instead of the opposite, which they're doing right now, which is a lot of boss wear where they're like, oh, if you're not in the office, they're checking your mouse, that your mouse is moving. That's not healthy. Oof. That's not a good, that's not the strategy. That's the ultimate micromanagement, right? Yeah, no. Like, that shouldn't be the, the strategy. Like, I even challenged a 40-hour work week. Yeah. They found in Japan, IBM, they did this 32-hour work week more productive than in 40 hours. Wait, that doesn't make sense. Four, they work four days a week. Right. But then they had three days off. Why did were they more productive? They could focus for longer periods of time because usually what was that? I forgot the study now, but even in an eight hour workday, you can only do like four hours of really focused work. Right. So, again, we're arbitrarily forcing people to sit in an office or be in front of their computer for X amount of time, assuming they're getting being productive when they're not when you can actually get more out of people if you focus more on their work rather than their hours that they're at work. Right, right, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. 
So tell me something. What are some of the positive changes then that you're that you're experiencing and witnessing with some of your clients that are taking advantage of Rediscover Your Play Workshop? So what I've seen is I've seen or I've seen organizations or staffers that more so appreciate why they're at that job again. They're more connected to the organization because they're like, oh, your values actually match my values. Not the ones you preach about, but what we actually talk about. I've seen conversations being had that haven't been had before. I've seen toxic people leaving because now staff are setting boundaries and being like, we're not tolerating that level of disrespect, as well as that leader realizes that that toxic person is causing so much money to be lost and so much productivity to be lost. They say, what is it? When you have a toxic leader, your staff loses about $7,000, I think even potentially per month in lost productivity per employee, just because they're so disengaged at work. Right. And that's at the low end. Right. So this idea of like, are staff more engaged? Are they having harder conversations? And are they addressing the most important issues right now that they're facing? And you talked about like during the pandemic, let's go back to that for a second. Yeah. During the pandemic, of course, our entire society changed its way of working, right? Yeah. So, which probably helped a little bit get people out of the the direct line of fire of the toxic employee, right? Maybe. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. I, yeah, I was just saying, I heard some stories there too. Yeah. But with, with the changing back now, now we're going back swinging the other way where they want people back in the office. Yeah. How, how is that changing burnout and the turnover. Well, it's ironic, right? Like asked everyone to come back into the office. Zoom. I know I heard that. I heard about that. Yeah. Zoom. Like the irony of this, the irony. I mean, come on, really? If you as a leader cannot justify why people are coming back into the office besides the vague promise of culture or we have better ideas when we're in the office, that's not good enough. That really isn't. Some people work better in the office. I get it. Some people work better at home. If I need to now commute commute two extra hours, yes, I know I used to do this, but now I'm commuting two extra hours, why is it worth it? So I can sit in the office and then be on another Zoom call that I could have done at home? You probably could have gotten more productivity out of me if I had just stayed at home. Well, I've been saying for years, I, you, uh, this is way before the pandemic because I started this business in 2013. I've been recruiting for over 30 years and I have said for many years that companies that, and I and I get it, there are a lot of people that have to be on site, people who are working in manufacturing, assembly, think, yeah, or hospitals, right? Right. But those people who don't have to be in an office, what's the point of having them come in? Is it because you're micromanaging? Yep. Is it because, like you were talking about a few minutes ago, that leadership, yep, that untrained leadership, the leadership that hasn't doesn't have some sort of a psychological training or behavioral training, that type of thing? Yep. Are, is that the problem? And you mentioned a while ago that that top-down leadership, if you've got a bad leader who's forcing people to come into the office and there's no real apparent reason why, yeah, especially going to be like Zoom, what's the outcome? The outcome is they're bitter. The outcome is they do less work. And then maybe there's more gossip because now they're back in the office. Ha has Zoom called you yet to come in? And 
I haven't reached. I'm going to reach out to them now that I see that article. I'm like, oh gosh. But yeah, so it again, it's it's providing the reasons why. Like, hey, we're having a meeting, and it's actually all staff meeting. It's really important that we all are there in the office. Makes complete sense. All right. Also, what after the staff meeting, then we're all going to be hanging out at happy hour. Great, great for op- connections stuff like that. But if you're telling me to come into the office just so I can sit in there. And then I know other people haven't showed up that day. Then like, what are we doing? Right. What are we doing? And the other reason is like, I don't care that you might be losing money on office space because people are not going back in the office. That's not a good reason for me to come back in. Right. Right. So these leaders have to be smarter about doing it. And then if they are going to use the iron fist of like, you don't come back in the office, then we're going to have to let you go. Guess what? They're going to go. Because there are plenty of other jobs they can do. And even my friend Sam was talking about this yesterday. Especially with Gen Z. Uh. If they don't like it, they bounce so quickly. Gen Z is going to be 30% of the workforce by 2030. 30%. Gen Alpha is going to be 5 to 10%. They have such a low tolerance for low emotional intelligence. Like if you are not an inclusive leader, they're out. They're done. They're moving on already. Somebody referred to them the other day as the now generation. I want it now. Well, it's not just that they want, but they just want a certain level of respect yeah. that we never got. Yeah, right, right. Right. Like Gen X, millennials, heck, even boomers were super disrespected. And then Gen, Gen Z is like, <laughs> I'm not going to tolerate that. So they'll leave. And then guess what? They'll either find another job or they'll find a bunch of part-time jobs or they'll make their own business. Yeah. It's so much easier now for them to figure out how to how to make money via Twitch, via Instagram, via TikTok. They'll figure out some other way. And I don't think a lot of employers recognize that. Yeah, let's go uh, transition over to a conversation then around the smaller businesses and around Gen Z, right? Mm-hmm. Because I have heard that Gen Z, we have this, I guess it was 95%. So this is going back... I want to say 2015, maybe, there was a number that 90 to 95% of all small businesses in the U.S. were owned and run by baby boomers. Mm. And there was a huge drop-off, right? And as the baby boomers are shifting out, going into retirement and dying off, that type of thing, Uh who is going to be running small businesses? And the millennials, Gen X and the millennials, were people who were more interested in working for corporations. They weren't as inclined to start their own businesses. And now you just mentioned that Gen Zs might Mm -hmm. though actually make those numbers go up again of small owners. Looking at that and looking at the Gen Z population, if they do decide to start a lot of small businesses again, what are the chances of burnout there? And how do you work with smaller companies, right? to foster some of the positive cultural actions, if you would, in smaller businesses? And what do you see with retention in smaller businesses versus big corporations? I mean, how do you compare those two? I don't know. I I feel like a lot of times we say Gen Z is very entitled, but I feel like we also said that about millennials and we're like, oh, millennials are very entitled. And I was like, well, I'm a Gen Xer. And they used to say that about us too. Yeah. So it's just like, there's always a storyline of like, whatever the people are. I have a lot of faith in Gen Z. I feel like their work-life balance 
is substantially better than ours. So when they run their small business, they'll take four weeks off because they just want to, right? They'll work when they want to work. They won't They won't adhere to the same patriarchal capitalistic metrics that, say, boomers would focus on or Gen X would focus on, right? Like, they'll work when they want to work and when, and when they don't, they won't. Like, I even you even see it in how they create their content and, and how much time they take off for vacation. So I'm not as worried about that. But what you said about small businesses and addressing burnout is just like, yeah, is... The reason why the reason why a small business looks better or potentially looks better than corporations right now is if that small business can provide flexibility, flexibility of time, flexibility of where you work, flexibility of of when you do other jobs. Like I'll give you a great example. I worked with a recruiting firm. They are recruiting people to like Gen Zers <laughs> that are doing recruitment during the day. But they also recognize and they recruit a lot of people from New York that are also actors and actresses that are also musicians that so they're giving them time to go pursue whenever they need to do an acting gig. They're giving them time whenever they need to do like a music gig or a comedic com comedy gig. So they're giving them freedom to pursue their dream job while also doing this job. And that is actually allowing them to stay longer because they're more. Because this company is more invested in their overall professional development, regardless of whether it helps out the organization or not. They just care about them as people, right? And the more small businesses that model what innovative small businesses are doing, the more likely they're going to be able to pull people from these corporations that lay people off like that, that you could be there for 15, like heck, even Google, who's motto used to be don't be evil is it i think it was this year a guy that had worked there for over 20 years found out that he got laid off at 4 a.m when he was supposed to go do some work in the morning to get ahead of something and then his fob key didn't work that's how he found out that's how he found out that he was gone he never got to say goodbye to his friends he never got like nothing so when these corporations are treating people in such an inhumane way, that's where small businesses are like, this is this is what we can provide you. Humanity and flexibility. And flexibility is important. And I think that, you know, because small businesses sometimes can overwork their people just as much. But I think mm -hmm. that is one of the things that I've always enjoyed about having, being in a small business is my autonomy, flexibility. Yes. And then also, too, there's no glass ceiling on where you can go. Well, but the, and it also the ch the thing about small business is you don't have the pressure right. of having to meet quarterly metr arbitrary quarterly metrics right. that match up to stock price. Right. That is the biggest issue. Right. Is like every answer to when a corporation does well is like, great, now do more, now do more. So small businesses, if you're able to just sustain or just do a small amount of a little bit of growth, then you're not burning out your staff. But if you're constantly rushing to the next thing, not celebrating, right? That's also a part of it, right? Not celebrating what you've already accomplished, but also doing sustainable growth so you don't get overwhelmed, then you're not burning out your staff. But if you're in constant greedy mode, then yeah, your staff's going to leave pretty soon. Right.
Now, so some of the, the play activities, if you would, uh-huh. that you've incorporated to, regardless of the size of the business, that, that are working in order to make the leaders kind of provide more flexibility, provide more fun, if you would, in the workplace. What are some of those activities and solutions? Um, some of those, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of this stuff is not complicated, right? It's like workshops around like gratitude and appreciation. How are you communicating and celebrating your staff? Are you even celebrating your staff, right? How are you connecting your staff back to who they are? Do you understand their play values? Like, do you understand how they get into their zone of genius? Do you understand their flow work, right? I've run workshops on inner critic, like, how do you address that mean voice that's in your head? <laughs> helping helping managers do that actually then helps them be better leaders because then they're not being so doubtful about their stuff and they can be more vulnerable with their staff. When, they're, when they actually are able to be more human with their staff and be like, look, I don't have all the answers, that's when they actually build more connection with their staff and their staff actually starts working harder for them. But when you have like a manager that's trying to pretend to be the boss that is constantly doing all these performative actions to show you like you need to be in the office, you need to do this, you got to get this done by EOD. Like after a while, that just gets old. Exactly. It's just like I had that in school. I don't need that now. So how do we how do you actually address that? How are we addressing behaviors of leaders? Yeah, I was going to say you talk about the zone of genius, right? Yeah. So so just to define that it comes from the psychologist Gay Hendricks that talks about how you have various zones of what you're good at and what you're not good at. Zone of incompetence are things you're just horrible at. Zone of competence are things you're average at. Zone of excellence are things you're really good at that you get a lot of praise for. That's what most people stay in. That's most of their work. But zone of genius is the work where you forget about time. It's the work where if you weren't getting paid, you still might do this work because you love it so much, right? Where are we spending, even if you're helping your staff identify their zone of genius and they're only doing it 5 to 10% more than they are doing it now, it actually helps all of their productivity substantially. And before Google lost, lost its way, Google used to do something called the 20% rule where they would let their staff do whatever they wanted for a fifth of the time, 20% of their time, as long as it benefited Google. They did this at the beginning of Google, I think the first few years. And what came from that zone of genius time where they allowed their staff to come up with brand new inventions as long as it helped Google? All of the foundations that built Google, AdSense came from that, Gmail came from that, Google News, Google Earth came from that. The basic foundations that have helped Google be successful was based on providing them playtime, right? Allowing them to play and pursue their zone of genius. So if you want your staff to be innovative, give them time. You can't give them a fifth of their time, but you can find 5% more time, an hour or two hours a week, where they can pursue something that's more interesting to them, that, that scratches their curiosity, Right. And when you're doing that, then they also see that you're investing in them and then they feel seen and appreciated and they feel more valued that way. I love that. No, that's amazing. I want to, I want to incorporate that into 
And that's something too, creating a, a zone of genius space is something that any company. Any company. Yeah. Who, who could take advantage of this? Who does this work for? Well, you could even do that for solopreneurs, right? Anyone that's listening that's an entrepreneur or solopreneur, what's the work that you forget about time? What's the work that you love to do most, right? Yeah. What percentage of time are you doing that work? Oh, well, I have all these other things I got to do. I get it. Right. I get it. But if you start your day with your zone of genius work, it's going to make everything more easy to get through, right? So are you incorporating that on a regular basis? Wow. I love the example that you gave on Google and all of the different offshoot parts of their business that came from. And I will say this, and we have to also recognize how are we motivating staff, right? Okay. Are we motiv motivating them from a place of fear, which I'm seeing a lot of CEOs do right now? And a great example that I give of like what happens when you motivate off of fear based off of what happens when you motivate off of curiosity and play is the Wright brothers. So a lot of people don't realize when the Wright brothers were trying to create the first flying machine, they were competing against this scientist called Andrew Langley and a bunch of scientists from the Smithsonian. And they were backed by a million dollars by the War Department, which is a ridiculous amount of money at the time. Every logical reason the scientists should have beat the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers were two bike mechanics in the middle of, of like Ohio. So why didn't they? Because there was so much pressure on these scientists to figure it out. And they were all about like praise and getting credit for what they did that they failed while the Wright brothers were just having fun and the community was helping them out and they would, they would do it because again, you'll find the future where people are having the most fun. When you're having fun, you do more work. You're doing it because you love it so much. And they got there first because they were having fun. So when you're driving through fear, not good, not good at all. What are some other examples? That's really actually pretty a pretty cool example. Do you have others that you can share where, where companies or even small companies have gained popularity and success through play? I'll give you a great example. There's the Milwaukee Public Library. <laughs> right. Why would anyone care about the Milwaukee Public Library? During the, during the pandemic and after, the Milwaukee Public Library started having their staff make videos of why they love being librarians. And they'd be like these funny, quirky, weird videos and just be like, this is why I love what a librarian does or you know, why, what, 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 what are the weird, strange parts of being a librarian in, in Milwaukee or whatever, right? Just making up all these funny videos. It caught on so much that they got hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok, hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram, and it increased their recruiting. It increased the amount of people they were visiting. There were people that would come to Milwaukee and now visit the Milwaukee Public Library that would never have visited. My friend Sam, who's never been to Milwaukee, follows them. Her friends follow them too, and they didn't even know that they both follow them, right? So, so making something that was considered boring, right, which is like, who wants to work at a public library, and they made it hip, by just showing people's personalities through TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, all of a sudden they're really popular. So 
these experiments, same thing happened with the Washington Post. They gave one guy the opportunity to be like, hey, make TikToks. That's what you're going to do during the pandemic. All of a sudden, Gen Z, the most popular newspaper on TikTok for Gen Zers, it was the Washington Post. Wow. The Washington Post, of all places? Yeah, right. Taking risks, right? Yeah. Innovating, like messing around, allowing yourself to fail, but trying new things out. That's what happens when you're willing to play. That's what happens when you're willing to experiment. That's where all of the innovation and creativity lies. It lies in the play. So now you talked and you've mentioned a couple times during our conversation about allowing yourself to fail and companies allowing their employees to fail and setting up that space for them to fail. Yeah. So do you have examples of where that has, where somebody has failed at something, but something ingenuous has come out of it? No, I mean, but exp I mean, and when I say fail, I'm not saying fail publicly, right? Right, right, right. A lot of this stuff is internal, right? Where they're like taking risks on a great ex look at Netflix, right? When Netflix started doing uh, Korean pop, I mean, or K-pop dramas, that they invested in things like Squid Game and Parasite and all these things, and now K dramas is like one of the biggest revenue generators of Netflix, right? But they started off experimenting very small. You can tell the organizations that are willing to take risks because they're willing to fall flat on their face in front of everybody while these other organizations are piecemealing it together. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because I hear about some of the uh, startup companies uh huh, and some of their experiments. That failed. But then all of a sudden they'll have this moment from the failure to to uh, a product that's becoming successful and and I know that the renewable energy industry has some some great examples there with there was one company we were working with that built flexible solar panels and just hearing some of their stories about some of their failures and but some of the successes that came out of it well well I think also we we have a we have a bad relationship with failure right right like I remember I used to have a colleague that used to be a NASA engineer and her she was working on the Mars rover, one of the first ones. And she's like, my main goal every day is to find ways for it to fail. Right. While it's on the ground next to me. Right. Because if we can find all 1,000 ways in which it's going to fail, when we send it 500 million miles away to Mars or however long it takes, right, then... um we will have already figured it out. And I think the problem is a lot of these ideas are not tested through many failures because people are so worried about having hard conversations and so worried about challenging the status quo or challenging their executive. They did a study not too long ago that said like 70 to 80% of C-suite executives, when they see a bad idea, they don't, they don't say anything. They just let it go. So if you think about it, most of the products that we're currently using, 70 to 80% aren't even the best versions of them. Oh, wow. Like there's no reason why my Apple cord should break after a year. Like there's just no reason. <laughs> or that it take or that I have to charge it every few hours. Like there's no reason, right? So what are we doing? Like we're not even rolling out the best of stuff. Right. Because we're not willing to have a hard conversation or, or be uncomfortable. Well, and again, too, going back to that perfection, expecting perfection from people. Mm -hmm. 
one of the things too, because I've worked in the semiconductor industry for a long time and their test labs for wafers before they start putting integrated circuit chips into products, right? They do, they have all sorts of different ways of testing now their products. And one of the things that came up was a Facebook. There was one company we were working for and they were actually using pattern recognition as a way to test wafers for imperfections so they can have a higher yield, if you would, of their integrated circuit chips. But they had developed the idea from Facebook using pattern recognition for people to align with other people they know, things like that. So I thought it was a it was a fascinating story when I heard about it. It was probably eight, nine years ago that they had actually used something coming from Facebook to develop pattern recognition machinery to improve something so technologically advanced like a wafer, integrated circuit chip wafer. Right, right. Right? Well, here's even a great example of play in such a weird context. But example is, I think it was, I think it's World War One, either World War One or World War Two, where they would analyze the planes that would come back and land back on the carriers or land back in the airfields. And they would look where all the bullets are. And they would be like, oh, man, there's all these bullets at the ends of the wings and at the ends of the plane we should start armoring those places. And they were like, and then after a while, someone was like, no, we're thinking about this wrong. These are the planes that are coming back. Yeah. So this whole play mentality, right? Looking at it differently, those are actually, it's good that those, those are the places you can actually get shot at and still survive and get back home. We have to be armoring all the places that where the bullet holes are not there. And that's how they were able to save more lives, right? Wow. So again, play perspective, messing around with how everyone's looking at it, challenging the status quo constantly helps with innovation that literally can save lives, right? There's a 16-year-old Dutchman, Boyan Slot. Boyan Slot, he was 16 years old on a scuba diving trip to Greece, and he found more plastic bags than fish in the sea. And at 16, he created this way to collect garbage from the garbage patch, right? Yeah. Now he's like in his his late 20s, and he's cleaned up a massive amount of garbage already from the garbage patch. And he's invented all these different ways in which to do it from both getting garbage directly from the ocean, but then also capturing garbage before it goes out into the ocean. But yeah, oh, his ocean cleanup nonprofit has collected over 100 million kilograms of plastic already. The company is called the Ocean Cleanup. A young, but remember, he starts this when he's 16 as just like an experiment. I think it was like homeschooled. So he was just like, I'm just going to try to come up with something because I was going scuba diving and I couldn't even enjoy doing that. And then now look what he's done. So again, what can play actually do? Play can save the world. Yeah. Play can heal workplaces. Play can heal political divisions if you want to. There's so many aspects for that, right? Then it's a whole different conversation that we need to have. I mean, and and everybody needs to hear that conversation, right? Right. How do you use play for politics? Well, Well, here, even this, if you had Republican and Democratic people before they debated had their kids play, And maybe they played as well, and they did that for a few hours, and then they had their conversation. Totally different. Right. 
it would just be totally different because then all of a sudden you're you're humanizing each other, right? There there is a guy, uh, Daryl Davis, who was able to get three hundred KKK members to leave the clan. How did he do it? One coffee at a time. He's a black dude just having coffee with each of them. Started with an experiment of just being like, hey, you want to talk to me? Let's have a conversation. And through play, each and every time, different way. And that's how he did it. So so that's play. He stigmatized then that, that racism, those people one at a time. But yeah, but that's why I speak about it so much. Like, But I'll, I'll end on this is... Play stopped a war for a day. A lot of people don't know this, but in World War One, I, I think it was the first year of the World War, there was there was a stalemate. It was like a stalemate for months between uh, the English, Germany, and I think Ireland was matched up with with England. Or it was no, no, not Ireland, Scotland, Scotland. So they're at a stalemate, and it's Christmas Eve, and they chose not to fight that that night right so there's a there was and again stories about this so what happened was that supposedly a german soldier started singing silent night in german and a scottishman started playing the bagpipes of the same song and then some englishman joined in singing in english and they did this with multiple songs until someone came out with a flag, a white flag from either the English side or the German side. And they met in the middle and they started exchanging chocolates and like and like stuff like, I don't know, like food and stuff. And then more people came out and more people came out and they started hanging out and like drinking bourbon and whatever they had. And they had a soccer match. There was a soccer match that happened in the middle of the field where they had been shooting each other. And this happened all across the battlefield, all across the line. But this, but here's the thing. It wasn't always happy. Some people came up with their flag and got shot. But their level or, or their desire for connection was so strong that they were willing to risk their life oh, wow. just to have that, right? And what happened was not only did then where there was still peace and where people connected and they played soccer or whatever, the next day when they had the fight the next day, a lot of people couldn't pull the trigger because they had humanized the other person. And they were like, whose family am I looking through my sights? So there's a there's a whole song called Christmas in the Trenches about this story. And this guy that sang this story, he was doing this in England he would travel around and sing this Christmas in the trenches story. And one day he saw these like really old guy, like these guys in their nineties. And he was like, he, they kept showing up every day to listen to that song. And he finally, at the end of his performance ran up to him. And he's like, who are you? Like, who, who? you're always here. You're always in the back, but who are you? And also it looks like it's really hard for you to get out here. And they were like, we were there. Oh. Like we were on that battlefield. Like, we we listen to this song that you sing because a lot of people say that it didn't happen and we were there and we and we always want to be reminded of it. But look it up, Christmas in the Trenches. So if play can do that, if play can stop a war, play can heal a workplace, right? Yeah. Play can heal division between people and play can help you like your job more. 
I think that's amazing. I, 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 hey, one last quick question, Jeff. What made you start this business? Um, I had a lot of crappy jobs. <laughs> and, and also this, like, so I used to work for, like I, I mentioned probably earlier, like I worked for this Lego-inspired STEM organization, right? And we taught kids engineering with Lego. And then I ran team building events using Lego for all these corporations, right? So like Facebook, Adobe, Google, all these top organizations, right? Amazon. And when we'd run these team building or programs, I'd be like, these are the top organizations in the world and these are not fun places or these are toxic places. And I was like, that's a problem. So after a while, I was like, well, team building is not going to solve this. So why don't I create my own organization to address these issues, issues that I care about? Like, how do we deal with toxicity at work? How do we have a hard conversation? How do we remind people why they love their work in the first place? Or how to deal with your inner critic stuff? How do you address fear through play, right? Like all these things that I'm interested in, how do you break down divisions through play? So that's why I created I, our, our first workshop I ever made, I made with a colleague of mine, Gary Ware, called Dealing with A-Holes in the Workplace Through Play. And it was so popular that we went to Australia to present it. How do you deal with a-holes in the workplace? We haven't even talked about. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but it really is about not tolerating that behavior and calling it out, right? And setting boundaries and not getting angry, right? Staying grounded in what, but setting your boundaries and being like, this, what is your, what is your goal? Like if you're a toxic leader, I would approach them and be like, what is your goal? Is your goal to get as many ideas out of us? Is your goal to get productivity? Because your approach right now is getting a lot of us to quit. Is that what you're achieving? And then if they're like, well, I'm going to be whoever I'm going to be, then I would be reporting them. I would be logging all of the issues they're doing, like making that book of of bad, bad behavior that I could give to HR as well as to my direct supervisor. And I'd be setting boundaries on a regular basis of like, you can't talk to me that way. A lot of times toxicity thrives in silence. And we just assume when we arrive that like, well, I guess Chad can do whatever he wants because no one's saying anything. But once one person stands up to that person and everyone starts getting the bravery to do it, it challenges that toxic person to either change their behavior or leave. And usually they leave. Wow. Interesting. So, Jeff, if a company or somebody who's listening to this podcast wants to reach you, what is your website address? Yeah. So you, so if you want to connect with me, simply go to rediscoveryourplay.com. Click on the Let's Play button. I even have a link that says work sucks, but it doesn't have to. Click on that. And that goes through all of the steps to start making it a more enjoyable place to work and what you can do to challenge toxicity so people can have fun again at work goodness so yeah and then if you want to find me on all the social media channels it's at jeff harry place j-e-f-f-h-a-r-r-y-p-l-a-y-s and i'm on everything so you can find me on any of that oh uh, yeah I, i've noticed that i because i have i've been on your website and you've boy I, you're becoming famous so i i'm honored to have you on our podcast uh thank you so much for your time I mean, you're my new friend, so I hope that we can have other conversations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and let's talk about how to heal politics next time because I think that would be a great conversation. Yeah, I'd love to explore that. Yeah. All right, Jeff, thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another insightful episode of Talking TA with Top Source Talent. 
We trust that our discussions has provided you with valuable insights and actionable strategies for your journey as a talent acquisition professional. Our mission is to be your go-to resource for staying ahead in the ever-evolving landscape of talent acquisition. Whether you're a seasoned recruiter or embarking on your recruitment career, our aim is to equip you with practical advice that elevates your day-to-day work. As we continue sharing valuable insights with you, we're excited to support your growth and assist you in building the best workforce for your team. Stay inspired, stay informed, and until next time, happy recruiting.